What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. What if you could sit down with a male stripper who has performed in over 600 shows from bachelorette parties to stripograms? Do you think he might have some fun and interesting stories to tell? If so, you would be right. You're going to hear some today, in fact. Andy Espinoza-Long is also the author of the memoir, Tales from the Strip, and has awesome thoughts to share about his journey and struggle to embrace his love of exhibitionism and more. We'll also delve into a listener question with Dr. Megan Fleming's help. A listener named Paul wrote in about his frustration over a lack of sex in his relationship and a fetish that's become a point of contention, potentially, with his partner. First, a huge sponsor shout out to The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to buy sex toys, lube, and other sexual health products. Shop at the link in the show notes on your app or head to one of their physical locations in New York, L.A., or Chicago, where you can also check out free sex ed workshops. They are awesome. Feel free to tell them that Girl Boner sent you. Andy, I'm so pleased to have you in the studio today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. So you grew up in San Diego in a household that you've called full of loving Latin women, and it was also a pretty conservative atmosphere. What do you remember learning about sex and sexuality? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, My family, uh, as I got older, I realized like on a scale of one to 10, as far as the men, like the whole alpha male silverback syndrome, 10. We're a 10. Yeah. Yeah, we're a 10. (laughs) Like I'm kind of the cutesy feminine one of the family. And when I get around a lot of guys, everyone kind of looks at me like, so quarterback or running back in college? I'm like, uh, no, I didn't. Yeah, know what I mean? So it's interesting <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that as I've gotten older, I've seen like how masculine my family is. But what's interesting is uh, the women in my family are, are the backbone. So it's it's um, in the outside world, we're the scariest guys around. Like in my neighborhood growing up, we were the big kind of scary guys. But inside the household, the women really kind of keep everything together and uh, have the power, so to speak. So I didn't realize that until I gotten older. And I started meeting a lot of guys that um, maybe didn't grow up with that. And it was interesting the way uh, I was used to like being around strong, powerful women, and a lot of people weren't. You know, I, And so I think sometimes kind of if you didn't grow up with that, maybe maybe you're inclined to kind of have like a disdain for it or like a distaste for it. But for me, I always kind of, that really turned me on or, or kind of like garnered my attention because I thought, oh, wow, like, you know, that reminds me of my nana or my sister or my mom or something. You know, it seems like, whoa. Yeah, so you weren't threatened by it because you didn't learn that women have to be small and timid. You learned they can have strong personalities and, and be bold. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if my dad gets upset, he'll like scream and yell. That's kind of his thing. But my mom, she doesn't really have to even do that. She'll just kind of change her energy aura and mm-hmm. it'll be like, oh, shit, you know, what did I do? Like, oh, wow, you know. So um, it's funny that a lot of people don't have that. And it's it's kind of sad because, um, you know, it's kind of the way things are going, you know. Uh, 
back in in, in the day, hundreds and thousands of years ago, it, we had matriarchal systems, you know, and that kind of changed in American history and 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 some modern history. But um, there's movements happening and there's things happening, and and so. I'm embracing it, but I'm noticing that there is kind of like a, a pushback from a lot of uh, my peers, so to speak. Interesting. Do you remember having any sort of like sex ed class or education around the quote birds and the bees? You know, I never had the birds and the bees talk with my family. But what's interesting about uh, my family is both my Tata, who's my uh, my mom's father, and then my dad, when it comes to stuff like nudity, um, they kind of broke me down when I was younger. We were very masculine, so like if you needed to change to go into the pool, you didn't go in the corner and put a towel around your waist and turn around. You just did it in the flesh. And I didn't really realize that growing up, but I was noticed that I had this kind of exhibition, like I was comfortable being nude in front of people or, you know, doing things. And I didn't, I just thought it was maybe because I was, you know, I had like a narcissistic complex. But as I got older and I started really delving into it, I realized that those things kind of happen when you're young, you know? So, uh, like in my family, I'm, I'm, I'm a grown man, but whenever I go home, the first thing I do is go upstairs and take my shirt off, and my dad kind of looks at my build and, like, gives me a critique. Wow. I can't imagine, because as you know, I'm from Minnesota, where we cover everything. So I know you went to school for journalism and uh, studied a, a range of, of topics, Native American studies, and have your bachelor's degree in political science. Could you share about the journey from, it sounds like you, you thought you might be headed in another direction and you ended up being becoming a professional stripper. When I was uh, in college, I was very um, progressive. I didn't know what that term meant, you know, because I didn't have a lot of education with, with certain sects of society. But um, I knew that I wanted to be, like, on the forefront of that stuff, you know, as a young man. Uh, but as I got older, I realized I, I didn't really have a passion to go to other countries and kind of uncover scandals and live and, uh, like, with the natives and stuff. I, I admired it and I read about it, but I always liked sexuality. I always liked entertainment. You know, those were things I always, even as a kid, I thought were so interesting and alluring. So that when I got out of college, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to move to L.A. and pursue a career in entertainment in some way, in shape or form. You know, I didn't have any sort of education. I didn't grow up like acting or modeling or anything. But I knew that it would seem like fun. Like I want to spend the rest of my life kind of pursuing it. And even if it took me a while... It just seemed like something that would be fun and would never get old. It's true. Yeah, because it is this creative path. And L.A. is an amazing place because so many people come with this like artistic, creative energy. And you never know where it will lead. Did you imagine that you might become a certain thing? Like was acting the main draw at first or were you sort of just open to something in entertainment? When I was really young, I used to write stories, like fantasy stories, and I'd make my Tata read them, and they were like about cybernetic ninjas, because I loved like, um, like Nintendo video games and, and Disney movies. And I knew eventually I'd want to write, but when I, was, when I was in my 20s, especially after college, I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be heard, and I, I don't think I had the patience to sit down and write. So I wanted to kind of get out there and kind of, you know, try my luck and kind of throw myself out there. And then, but I, but in the back of my head, I, I always knew that once I gained enough life experience that I really wanted to write stories. 
because um, I've always loved stories. I read comic books as a kid and stuff like that. And so uh, it kind of, in a weird way, it, it, it is kind of going the way I predicted it would go. There's definitely been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, side task and, and interesting dilemmas that have come up along the way, mostly self-inflicted. But uh, I would say it's kind of working out the way I thought as a kid. That's really fascinating. And you have lived your way to becoming a writer because now you have so many stories to tell, right? Tell us about the first time you stripped. I never had any intention of uh, of being a male stripper. I um, I didn't really know much about it. It was actually before like the Magic Mike movies had come out and uh, the Chippendales thing. I remember that was you know these big kind of hulking kind of beautiful behemoths. So um, it was when we were living in L.A. I had moved here with my best friend. I was working at Equinox as a trainer. And on the weekends, you know, you don't have many clients. And he had he was a kind of a flashy, handsome guy, always a ladies' man, always kind of a of a of a debonair. And so um, he booked like an, a a gig with another guy or something, and the guy backed out. And we were roommates, and he said, "You know me, like you need to do this and that." And I kind of got dragged along. I mean, I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't really want to go. Um, and I made that night like $700 cash or something. And I think at the time my car had cost like $700 cash. I bought <laughs> off Craigslist. It was like a little beat up car, you know. Yeah. So when I moved to L.A. after college. I had no money. Like I was sleeping on my friend's floor on a cot and I was taking the bus to Equinox, you know, and seeing guys pull up in Range Rovers and Lambos. So I remember uh, after that gig... It kind of changed my life, you know, and uh, my friend actually, he, he does them now and again, but I really just dived full in. I was good at it and I and I liked it. I liked the attention. I liked the um, satisfaction and I liked uh, the approval. How did you know what to do that first time? Obviously, you know, the clothes come off. Did you just naturally flow into like dancing or what was that like? Yeah, the first time really, like, dictated uh, what would happen for the next, like, 10 years of my life, believe it or not. Because uh, I think if that party had gone bad, which it probably would have if it wasn't that particular group of girls, I wouldn't have done it. Because our scheme was a mess. Like, we didn't know what we were doing. I dressed as, like, Frank Sinatra, and he dressed as Top Gun, Tom Cruise. And um, the thing was, the girls didn't even care. They just brought us into the room. We had a whole routine worked out. It was garbage. But they just brought us in and uh, totally just threw our plan out the window and just started playing music and tossing shots down our throat and jumping on top of us and putting money in our pants. And that doesn't happen very often. That happens like one out of 100 gigs. I still don't know to this day if I've ever done a gig like that gig. So it was kind of like divine intervention in a way. Yeah, it was interesting. It pulled you in. You're it like, really did. Yeah. I want more of this. We had full acceptance, and uh, even though our show was trash, like it didn't matter. Wow, there are good lessons there, of which I know in your book, the stories. You talked about how the stories are entertaining, but that each one has a lesson. And there's something beautiful about going out on a limb and trying something and and letting it sort of, as you said, like divine intervention, just see how it goes. And and maybe you find a part of yourself that you didn't realize you had before. What is one experience that provided a, a pretty profound message for you personally? 
in my uh, debut uh, novel, Tales from the Strip, I kind of have this... Um, each chapter is sort of its own story. I, I really tried hard because um, I love stories like that, where you can kind of pick up and go at any point. Yeah. And if your mind, let's say you stop reading, but in your mind, you, rem- you remember the basics, and I kind of reiterate them to you. But there is like one kind of overarching storyline there, and it's with uh, a, a girl that I met at a gig that we ended up dating and, and sort of having this kind of off-again, on-again relationship that was... Um, at some points it was really, uh, inspiring. And then at other points it was really deteriorating. And, um, she was younger than me. She was beautiful. She was smart. She, she reminded me kind of of me before I, I guess kind of went off on this crazy journey. So I really admire that about her. Like I looked up to her, you know, uh, she lived with her family and she had like a lot, she had everything kind of going for her. And then, spoiler alert, you know, later in the book, like, we find out some things happen and uh, her future is, like, forever changed and she can never go back. And she kind of loses all those opportunities. Mm. And um, and I'm still here. Wow. You know? And it was interesting because it was somebody that I put on a pedestal as, like, hands down, this person is, quote, unquote, better than me. You know? Like, she's got her shit together. Yeah. She can get wild sometimes, but... For the most part, like she's going places. And then the universe kind of dictated otherwise. And that was like a big wake up call for me because I'm still here. Yeah. And she, in some way, shape, or form, isn't. Wow. So it was really, um, you learn a lot with stuff like that. You know, you meet a lot of people and you see a lot of things. And it's rare for me to really get like affected by something. And that affected me mm. in a lot of ways. It sounds like it, it especially to become a, a strong narrative in your book that you, in hindsight, can see so many um, lessons and also the perspective of you still being here, you know, that, that you have persevered. You mentioned to me before we started that people have perceptions and ideas and kind of preconceived notions about male strippers. What is one of the biggest myths that you come up against? People usually get like perceptions on things based off something that they've heard or or seen themselves. It's rare that they kind of make up something out of nothing. Like usually if somebody kind of has an idea or something, it might not be correct, but there's something based off of it. Like a seed of truth. Yeah. That kind kind of got taken far. Exactly. So (laughs) sometimes they're right because I've worked with a lot of male strippers and I'm not dogging anybody. I know a lot of people and I have some of my good friends are male strippers, but for the most part, I'm not your average male stripper or what the average male stripper consists of. And I have a few friends that are similar to me that I feel comfortable. Like if you hired me for a party, but I was out of town. I would refer one or two guys, and if they weren't available, I would basically say, August, uh, I can't refer anybody else. Like, you have to figure it out. Because there are, you trust these individuals, and you know that they will bring something comparable to what you would. Exactly. Um, so I, I love it because I love to entertain. And a lot of times it's guys that don't love to entertain. They just kind of need the money. So I've taken, uh, I've actually gone and recruited because I get a lot of calls sometimes. There's been times in, where I'm po- more popular than others. It depends on the algorithms online. 
But there was a time where I was really getting a lot of work. So I went and found like the most beautiful guys I could. Cool guys. I mean, these guys were blew me out of the water. They were younger, handsomer, taller, ripped, um, and funny and charismatic. So I thought, dude, this is going to work. You know, trust me, if I can do this, you can do this. They couldn't do it. They didn't know how to be in a room full of women, adjust to the temperature of the room, and then make it their temperature. Mm. And that's a difficult task. Like you have to either have something instilled in you from a young age, like I believe me, or you have to be somebody that really works on it. Like my friend Billy, who is a great dancer. And it's through a lot of like work. Like he's really passionate about it. Like he probably didn't get the same starting tools that I did, you know, Um, but he's made it work for him. Mm. And so I brought a few guys that were dancers from like the Abbey and stuff like that. And I didn't feel comfortable ever bringing them back. So it's it's a very difficult thing that I think a lot of people don't get. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen somebody similar to what we do. Right. Because when it's done very well, it looks easy, right? So people think, oh, I could do that. I move around. I take off my clothes. I accept some cash, and I I go on my merry way. But it sounds like there is there's skill. There's natural talent. There's the development of skills maybe over the years that you're able to apply. But but probably also a natural you know sort of that it factor. Like some people, it comes very naturally. Some people have to study harder. When I heard you speaking about that, I was thinking about acting and modeling, which are my like past careers. Same thing. Like there's certain certain people would come to an acting class, and it just seemed like they didn't have to really, they didn't have to work as hard as I did. Um, I worked really, really hard. I studied really, really hard. Modeling was much easier for me, but even that, I feel like people think is very simple. But there were models that I worked with who. And we all have bad days, and and certainly I'm sure I had many bad days myself. But you could tell that there were certain people who were connected to the art of it, and there were certain people who just it was like just this thing, and people told them they might be good at this, and um, or it was very much about themselves. I I was in a photo shoot with this one guy for this Brazilian magazine, and the entire time he was like patting his um his uh what do you call the uh, bathing suit, like um, almost like a g-string, but like a fluffer. A, he's fluffing himself, kind maybe, of. Maybe, yeah, maybe he's fluffing himself. Okay. Yeah, fluffing, patting, and and he would ask me, he's like, "How does how does my dick look?" And I'm like, "Wow, we're here for the client, you know." Yeah. Like it just was a weird. And he was a nice guy. Yeah. I mean, we just were very different people. But um, and there are I think benefits to. I was very insecure a lot of the time that I was in my modeling career, um, personally. But but when I was working I, I took pride in like working hard and, and bringing it to the table and and creating art and I think that his approach was he was very confident and certainly I could learn from that <laughs> but it's interesting that people come to it for different reasons and I think in in the adult industry I've noticed that there's this myth that oh if people strip or they do porn or they do sex work they are being forced into it it's their only option and sometimes that is the case if you're forced to do sex work of course that's trafficking but but there are also people who come to it because it's really empowering. They love it. It's so fun. They, uh, Which is like most jobs, if you think about it, because you could be pressured into becoming a doctor. Like everyone's like, oh, you're so smart. You should be a doctor. And you hate it. To me, that is 
almost tragic, right? But because it's in the realm of anything with sexuality, there's like this taboo around it. Do you find that? I remember I told myself like, okay, the stripping thing is fun and I make good money on the side. But by the time I'm 30, I'm done. No more. And then I turned 30 and I thought, man, this is so fun. You know, like <laughs> it's hard to, yeah. once you do that, it's hard to go back to trying to go out on a Friday night when you're single and go to a club in Hollywood and try to buy a girl a drink compared to stripping, you know? So I thought, okay, well, 31 and then I'm done. <laughs> and then I turned 31 and I love it more than ever. I can't, mm. it's like so fun that even if tomorrow, Penguin Putnam calls me. Netflix calls me. We're good. I don't want to give it up. I still want to do a show every now and then. It's that like, makes me so happy. It's so fun because I noticed when I had a lot of guy friends that when they got around girls, they wanted to talk about themselves. It's a natural thing, you know, to be like, oh, wow, there's some pretty girls. I want to, um, I want to, I want to show them how worthy I am. I want to show off. I want to showboat to impress them so that they like me. But through uh, growing up in my family with a lot of women who like to talk and then being a stripper, I don't do that. I like to hear what you have to say. I've been living with myself for a long time. I've been telling the same story to a lot of different people for a long time. It's a lot more fun to me and engaging if I can hear what you have to talk about, you know, because I'm used to sitting somewhere and staring at a woman and listening to her and then playing off of that. And I noticed that a lot of men didn't get that opportunity growing up. And so that's what's really interesting. So when I wrote the book, I just wrote it to kind of be like, oh, this is some interesting stories, very Sex in the City-esque, very um, American gigolo, eat, pray, love. But as I'm like continuing, that's why I love uh, talking to people like you, because I think it brings up a completely bigger topic. Like it's, it's very interesting on just um, dealing with a, a ma- being a man and dealing in a world of women and it really teaches you a lot that I think a, a lot of people men and women could learn from mm. you know yeah I do I do I, that makes a lot of sense to me it seems that you you grew up with a lot of uh, thoughtfulness and awareness and and a lot of stereotypical gender roles were challenged which is a beautiful thing I think I think it's brought you strengths which is really which is really great yeah. I did a party in San Diego this past weekend when I went to visit my family and it was a it was just five girls in a hotel and they were kind of conservative from Arizona and um all wearing fancy dresses going to a party later the main girl didn't know I was coming the contention in the room when I walked in was high there was five girls it was a small area 5 years ago that wouldn't have gone well but because I've learned how like yeah, of course. These girls are wearing dresses. They're going to go out. Four of them didn't even know I was coming. They didn't really bring any tips, but the girl's paying me. I knew how to play it in a way that by the time I left, they were in a better mood than when I got there. And that takes time and effort to kind of really understand like a woman's boundaries and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and, and how to flirt and uh, make everybody in the room feel special and like it's it's not I'm not just uh oh wow look at that girl and kind of give her the attention I don't I don't really work on that I actually think being a male stripper if done correctly is empowering for women if you know what you're doing like you should leave that party with everybody in the room 
whether it's the prettiest girl, the bride herself, or the mom, everybody should be empowered and feel sexy by the time you leave. Mm. You know? And that's that's, that's something I didn't start out knowing, but as I've come along in the way, like that's what kind of keeps me going back because there's nothing better in the world than that feeling. Mm knowing that I made people happy. That's probably why you're successful. That's that's really awesome. I have to ask you because I don't know a lot about the stripping industry, but one of my dreams is for more inclusivity everywhere, right? And so when I think of stripping, adult film, all the different kind of adult entertainment, I really long for more diversity of age and shape and size and that appeals to me. It's almost, it is a turn on for me. Like diversity is a, is a turn on for me. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, still loving it, still loving it. Do you see yourself doing this? Like, could you be doing this in your 60s? And and would you also like to see more diversity or is it out there and I just don't know about it? It's interesting with the male stripping industry because usually girls, um, they're kind of picky. So they kind of know what they want. You know, if they're going to order a white guy, they're going to order a white guy. If they want to order a black guy, they're going to order a black guy, you know. So uh, a lot of times, if unless I book it myself, if they come to Andy the Gypsy, then it's different. But a lot of times if a company hires me, they don't even know who's coming. They just know like a white guy or like a Latin guy is coming. I'll fit one of the two. Um, and, and that's kind of like their preconceived notion. Like that's what they want and that's what they're looking for. But I heard about this, uh, I was talking with my friend the other day, and he was telling me about this strip club in Atlanta, a female strip club, where there's girls that are young and beautiful, but there's also strippers that are kind of like older, like kind of like Golden Girl-esque. And beautiful yeah. in another way. Yeah, and yeah. he was telling me that he's friends with one of them who is one of the main girls, and she's and they go out and eat and stuff like that, and she's like known and respected in the in that world, you know? And I thought that was really cool because I, I thought about it. I've never been to one, but I thought, you know what? I think that would be really fun. That would be cool. And it breaks it up and yeah. it makes it. One of the reasons I don't go to a lot of strip clubs is because of the the stigma and kind of the feeling when I get there. Like, I love going to stuff and hanging out. But I notice a lot of uh, a stripper sometimes, um, if it's slow or something, you know, they're working. So they don't really sometimes want to be there. It can be rough, you know. That's why I never really worked at like a, a male strip club because when I go, you'd be surprised. A lot of times you'll go to a party where the girls paid you or the, the customers paid you, but then they don't seem to want you there. You know, it's a very interesting thing. That's why I don't do a lot of co-ed parties sometimes because half the people want me there, half the people don't. And at the end of the day, I'm just an entertainer. I don't need any drama or escalation. I just want to come and, and if you pay me, I show up. If not... I go home. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Yeah. So I've been learning a lot about like the whole um, idea of stripping and making it fun. So I used to think I would never want to do it, but I probably like stripping more than ever and I'm older than I've ever been, you know? And so I don't know. I think, I think I'll always, no matter what happens, I think I'll always kind of have an itch for it and want to make a special appearance. I even have a friend who's 60 years old, but he looks great. And we're talking, we used to have a club out in Palm Springs where we had a show on Fantasy Fridays at Zelda's, but the club closed down. But we're talking about getting another club. And if we do, and I run it, I want to have an act for him, you know, and I'll help put it together because I think people would love it. Yeah. It makes sense to me that 
you would love your career more and feel more confident in it because I feel that as we age, you know, with maturity, we gain so much insight about ourselves and other people and the way that you've learned how to feel the temperature in the room and that it's not, you're not so concerned about, oh, I need to make sure I look exactly this way. You're more concerned with how other people are feeling. And I could see more skills. Like in in some European countries, they have uh, women teaching younger women about sexuality. And these are women who are like 60s and 70s because they are looked up to as the most experienced, the ones who know their bodies, the ones who have had interactions with a lot of different people and or different styles of people, different um, ages. They they just they have a lot more kind of like abandon about it. They're just they're much more adventurous. So I could see that. Maybe maybe you could start like a golden years stripping. That club. reminds me of um in the book I wrote about this one chapter where uh Bee Spun in Hollywood, it's a it's a pole dancing studio. Uh the owner hired me like maybe four years ago to strip at the um Christmas party. So I stripped to the Christmas party and that was my first time really like kind of seeing the pole dance community. And I learned a lot from that. Like um, I used to think pole dancing, you're a stripper. But what I love is that the women who who dance pole, it's not really that. I mean, it is dancing on a pole, but it's kind of like a way of embracing your sexuality and getting comfortable with yourself. And it's very empowering. Like I learned a lot and that really affected me to where I've even taken classes and stuff like that because um, I just find it like inspiring and interesting that you could use something like pole dancing as a way to, because it's a beautiful art, but it's it's what's even more beautiful is the way the women have kind of used it as a place of like, um, like you know, like almost like prayer in a way, you know? Yeah. It's like a sacred kind of place. And uh, I loved it and I learned a lot and I thought it, it's things like that that kind of showed me like maybe I wrote a book about male stripping, but maybe if I keep going into this, maybe I could help kind of figure out and talk to a lot of men about embracing their femininity, but that it doesn't make you any less macho. And even if it does, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I love that. You know, yes, I a, love that. I have a friend who has a teenage son and he dances. And I love when she shares videos because it is challenging that idea that to be a male, to be a boy, you have to do these quote unquote macho things. And and yeah, that it is a beautiful part. I could see that like a really sensuality embracing type thing. That's, and you can do both. Awesome. I totally, think a lot of people totally. don't get that like um if you meet me, like, I love UFC. I love Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor. I want to look like them. I kind of look like them. It's part of my thing to be look like those guys. But I've put on heels and danced in a pole studio. You know, I've taken classes. It's scary. But um, I kind of, and here's what's crazy is, I don't think they're that much different. I don't think taking a boxing class is that much different than taking a pole dance class. You know, it's just the, the kind of the stigma behind it. To me, they're both very similar. You know, I get the same feeling of anxiety and like a performance and it's tough and difficult and people are judging whether it's a bunch of girls in their underwear that know how to go upside down already or a bunch of guys with mouthpieces in that are, you know, sweating and have muscles. So I would like to kind of continue into that and, you know, really like learn more and um, and study a lot of the, the, the current movements that are going on because 
I'm, I'm, I love what's happening in society, but there's still a place for a guy to talk to guys, mm. you know, and yeah. uh, it's a new era. Yeah, and that there's vulnerability in that which is beautiful, you know, when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and maybe do things that we aren't super comfortable with at first and to be able to to have vulnerable conversations with a fellow guy, you know, I think that would be huge. We have a question from a listener that I think ties into some of the themes we're talking about. Uh, It's a really good one. It comes from Paul who wrote this. I have a small fetish for nylons, fishnets, thigh highs, etc. And my wife is well aware of this. We've been together for seven years. In the beginning, sex was great. We had it all the time and my fetish was being satisfied. Then we moved in together. I became a stepdad to her kids, helped her finish school. She became a teacher while I dropped out to work. Now we have sex about once a month. She dresses up maybe once every six months. And even when we have a date night, there's nothing flirting or sexual about it. We don't even have sex on special occasions. Uh, We have talked. In the past, she stated that the fetish seems to be more important than sex. Like, I only want her if she's dressed up, which isn't true. She has a strong personality, and it can be difficult to figure out her mood, which has resulted in me not trying much anymore. She also said that because I have rejected her advances in the past that she doesn't want to try. So even though I have an average sex drive and am a sexual person, I've spent my late 30s not having much sex. So now in his early 40s, he's actually thinking of telling her that the reason he hasn't proposed is because of a lack of sex. Here is what Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Paul, thanks so much for your question. You know, and there are a few things I want to say. I mean, one is that... um, what I think is great is that even though, you know, you have a fetish, a, a strong turn on for nylons and fishnets and thigh highs, that it's not the only way in which you can get aroused. Because that's often one of the things from an assessment side that I'm curious about is, you know, some people, again, it's a, it's a key turn on. Um, and yet it's not needed, right, in terms of being able to get aroused. Because for some, it really is so um, exclusive that without the fetish being in play, sometimes people can be challenged to get aroused. And so I think it actually ties back into part of your question and experiences, because when you spoke with your girlfriend, she's come to believe from her own perspective, that somehow the nylons and how she dresses up, right, as if that's more important to you than sex. And so when you said it with clarity, right, that in no way is true. To me, that is the piece that you really need to follow up on and and really letting her know two parts. One is that absolutely, that is not the only way um, you are aroused. And most importantly, you miss her, right? You miss sex, you miss connection, you miss intimacy. And I think somehow that's gotten lost for her. And so I think you really need to make that explicitly clear that, no, of course, there's a preference there, but that's not the key of um, to your distress, right? Your distress is we're only having sex once a month, right? And, and you know, being at your age, like that just isn't sort of the life that you envisioned for yourself, which sort of ties into the second part of your question, which is, you know, you guys have been together seven years. And I can hear all the responsibility. I mean, both working, you know, stepdad, four kids. I can imagine how incredibly busy your schedules are. So you're like a lot of my couples. In fact, um, there was a research study in California that Gottman, John Gottman, the famous marital researcher often refers to, which is, you know, can you imagine how often a typical couple spends a week sort of not talking about sort of the logistics of raising a family, you know, sharing sort of domestic and all the duties to running a household. And I was blown away myself by the statistic, which is 30 minutes. So 
if you're like most couples and you're only spending 30 minutes together for connection, it's kind of no wonder from my perspective that people aren't having more sex, right? Because it's not uncommon. Women in particular want to feel connected to be sort of um, open and receptive to the more responsive desire. So what I could say here is, understandably, you have your concerns. And I think you need to be really frank and letting her know, as you said, that is one of the reasons that you haven't yet proposed. And it's, again, not uncommon. I have a lot of couples that come to me um, that have been together for a number of years. And, you know, I always would say when sex is going well, it's a small part of a relationship. But when it's not going well, it can cast a shadow on the relationship as a whole. Um and that, again, it's often a reason people come into therapy, which is, I would love to think about spending the rest of my life with this person. And yet, if this doesn't improve our sex life, I'm not able to make that commitment. So I think you both really have to get on the same page about, again, the vision for your relationship and your sex life. What is it that you both like it to look like? You know, what is the frequency? And, and an important piece is also the quality. Um and just knowing that, you know, we have an expression in our culture that the grass is greener on the other side. And I'm like, no, it's actually where you water it. So in relationship, it's really important that we are nurturing our relationships, that we are taking the time um, and that we are paying attentive, uh, paying attention and being attentive to what turns our partners on and that we're um, making that the priority. So these, um, I can completely understand your frustration. And I definitely think it's time for, as again, I often say, it's not a definitive conversation, but a series of conversations so that you both can come up and come to a shared vision. As always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what she said about talking to his wife about missing the closeness and the connection because I think it could be really easy to feel like if it comes across as if we don't have sex more often I'm not going to marry you that sounds like an ultimatum that could feel painful but what he really wants is that intimate connection and if he also focuses on her desires as well I think there could be a, a huge opportunity here for them both to flourish as a couple and also to make sure that both of their their needs are met I can really relate to this question because I too have a fetish of like lingerie. That's one of that's like my main fetish, I would say. It's you know, it's not the most crazy or out there, but like I love that. When I'm I'm talking to a girl and we start talking, she's like, What are you into? I'm like, lingerie. I love lingerie. Um, I even like have ordered pieces on Amazon just to have at my apartment. Um, just in case, you know. So I totally get that. What I also learned was that I had a few girlfriends in my past where at first, oh, they loved putting on the lingerie, they loved getting on their knees and blowing me or getting on top of me or just satisfying me, fantasy. But if I didn't keep that alive in the relationship or there was a distance in the relationship, it kind of died down, you know? And it's natural over time to kind of die down, but I'm looking back on it, I know it's because I wasn't being the best boyfriend that I could be, you know? So at first, they really liked me because I was very attent uh, attentive and I, um, I, I really put them on a pedestal. So they loved putting on lingerie and shaving their legs and then having like date night and we'd have fun. And, but as time went on, if I didn't keep them on that pedestal, you know, they kind of lost that zest. You know, they just would get a little lazy or they'd be like, let's just do it normal or let's do it another way. And looking back on it now, I thought at the time, like, oh, she's just, you know, reeled me in. She reeled me in and now we're together and now she's she doesn't want to do that stuff. 
I probably could have gotten that stuff if if I had done certain things to make her feel sexy. And it's possible that she also wants more sex, but she doesn't feel like she can enjoy the sex that she wants, right? Like there's always, you just never know. Yeah, that's true. You, I, maybe she has a fetish. Maybe, maybe we can parlay and we can work together on this. Um, and it's, I get it. He's coming from a place of love. He wants his relationship to be built. But I didn't hear much about him listening to her wants and needs. Because what I've learned about women is in order sometimes for me to get what I want from them, I have to provide them with what they want. And if I'm not educated on what they want, then I'm just complaining all the time. Like, oh, why don't you give me head? Why don't you put on lingerie? Why don't we have sex like we did before? This is lame, you know? Instead, I would recommend him, we know you like lingerie. We know you want to have sex with your girlfriend, potentially your fiance in lingerie. Let's put that away for now. Let's rebuild it to where she wants to have sex with you. Because it sounds like she doesn't want to have sex with you. There's something happening. And I don't think she's having sex with anybody else. I just think her sex drive is low because the relationship that you two have created, it's not based on that. But sex is very important. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so many things can happen, you know, where maybe it's stress or... But that connection that you... I loved what you said about really listening and figuring out you know, are am I giving as much to the relationship as I used to? Because relationships are they're about they're not about one person wanting and the other person giving, right? Yeah. They're they're about sharing and, and um working together and collaborating. Maybe uh watch a few videos on um on deep tissue massage. And then one night when you guys are hanging out, bring her into the room and here she's like thinking, Oh my god, he's gonna try to put me in lingerie and fuck me. No. You've got candles, you've got incense, you've got music, you lie her on the bed, you give her this really um, erotic and pleasing massage. A lot of times if I'm dating a girl and, and our sex, like let's say it's, it's our sex drive is at a, at a low point or we haven't gotten there yet, one way I'll use to arouse them is I'll give them a full body massage. You know, I, I, I dated a girl once who, who used to give me massages and I really learned and I put time in. And I'll, it's like a 45-minute massage. Massage your feet, massage your thighs. No sex, you know. Get, maybe go down on her afterwards. Get her riled up. You know, that's one thing you could do. Take a yoga class with her. Or, or, or do yoga together when the kids are asleep or mm-hmm. when the kids are in the pool in the backyard. You brought up really, really good points. It's so interesting because so often when we think the problem is sex, like lack of sex or a different kind of sex, it's often not really about sex that the sex evolves from something else. So when you are, and getting off on giving each other pleasure through that massage or whatever, that's amazing. And when you delight in each other's pleasure with or without sex happening, then I think it naturally happens, don't you? Like it, it evolves. Yeah, I, I dated a girl once who was beautiful and we had like the best sex, but I didn't, I didn't really treat her well for a while. And her sex drive dropped, even though she was a very sexual woman she you know what i mean um but i noticed that we kind of dipped and it was because of it was because of things that i did you know mm-hmm. uh and things that i said and the amount of tension and um the the way where i put her on my list of importance uh but i did try to make an amends by having a few date nights where it was catered to her and pleasing her you know i made her the food she wanted and then we watched the movie she wanted and then i gave her a shoulder massage and then at the end of the night when i was going to go to bed she wanted to give me head 
she wanted to get on top of me. And I bet you enjoyed it so much more when you knew that this was coming from her, not because she felt obligated or because you pressured her, but to actually, she really wanted you because there's nothing as sexy as feeling that your partner wants you. Like oh, that yeah. is universally the biggest turn on. I learned a lesson when I was really young in high school. I had my first girlfriend, beautiful girl. She ran track, very sexual. And we used to have sex a lot. And I was like a horny high school kid. And I remember one time, I her parents were out of town. We were hanging out. And I said, let's do it. Let's do it. And she, was, she didn't want to do it that day. She just didn't really feel like it. And I kept playing, like, come on, come on, because I can be kind of a little, like, me, 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 you know? Um, and I remember finally she kind of gave in, and we had sex. And I didn't like it at all. I got my way, but afterwards I felt, like, awful. It was weird. It was a really weird feeling afterwards. And I was like, hey, sorry, you know, I just... Once I, like, came and, my you know, my brain kind of came to. And I remember thinking... And she was like, it's a cool, it's cool, it's cool. But like her energy was just kind of like, and I remember thinking, I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to have sex with a girl again in my life who doesn't want to have sex with me. I did not like that feeling. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so important and I imagine people can relate. And I think because boys learn that they're supposed to be aggressive about sex, you know, to learn that actually, oh, wow, this is, it's not as fulfilling for anybody if only one person's into it, unless you're, you know, a raging sociopathic attacker and there's no excuse for that. Um, but anybody else, it's like we have to learn that that and also to have other outlets for our, our emotions. You know, as we evolve as people, if if a man only has sex and arguably the other one is violence, right? Like these are the things that are OK for you. Like you can you can play sports and you can be violent and you can be very sexual. But to actually connect, I loved what you said about you know, um, bringing men together and, and maybe you're dancing and there's sensuality. And it, it's just it's a very holistic approach, which I appreciate. I wanted to ask you about your love for exhibitionism. You hinted a little bit at the beginning about how it's something that was kind of brought into you in your family, but it sounds like you've also grappled a little bit with with embracing um, your love for, for that. Do you remember a turning point in your life? Was it when you started stripping or, or when did you start to feel like, oh, this is really what I love doing, putting myself on display and that's okay? Believe it or not, it wasn't until this year when I uh, wrote a book kind of talking about a lot of things that, you know, uh, I thought about. Like the book is, I mean, there's there's parts of it that I had to rearrange that are that are slight fictional. But for the most part, it's a memoir. I like to consider it like a narrative nonfiction. But um, if if you consider it a novel, it kind of is, you know, Um but through that process of kind of exposing a lot of the things that I've seen and I've done, it was cathartic in a way. Because even though my family's very exhibitionist, we're very like traditional where I always liked porn. I always liked nudity. I thought it was cool. I mean, I still think it was cool. But I thought, no, 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 I couldn't do that. Like, I couldn't do that, you know, even though I was walking that fine line. And it wasn't until I kind of wrote the book and I got a lot of things in my mind that have been thinking about because I love writing about sex. I love talking about sex. I think it's so fun. But it wasn't until I kind of wrote the book and put it out there and was like, all right, it's fucking out there. You know, pardon my French. It's out there and it's never coming back. And when I was able to do that, it made me start being like, you know what? 
this is me at an age where I'm never going to get any younger. I love this stuff. I just need to do it and do it, do it the way that I want to do it. Do it the way that makes me feel comfortable and me feel happy. But because I published the book, I remember when I wrote the book, I thought, oh man, this is it. You know, it's going to take me three or four years, but this is it. Netflix, here we come. Sex in the City, Candace Bushnell, here we come. But as I've kind of evolved, even if that doesn't happen, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it kind of had, I had this, this chip on my shoulder that I didn't want to show the world and I didn't want to, you know, embrace. And I knew that I had something that was kind of different because I've met a lot of people along the way and I've always kind of been questioned about my sexuality and my, my, um, my gender identification and certain things. And I just always took it as like, oh, people don't get me. But now, because of things like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy or Sex in the City, I'm learning that I think that's one of the things that defines me, you know? So I'm doing it now in a way that I'm comfortable with, like posting uh, provocative semi-nudes on Twitter or starting my own OnlyFans where I kind of show uh, my full body and stuff. But, I'm, but it feels um, empowering in a way. And I'm still kind of dabbling with it. I'm still like... I'm one of those people that, I, like, I didn't do a front flip into the pool. I'm stepping down the steps as we speak, <laughs> but yeah. I'm enjoying it. And that's kind of what's bringing me to where I thought, you know what? Even if I write a sequel to the book and let's say they never get made into a show, where it's going to lead me is where I kind of wanted to go. I just didn't have the courage until I started, you know, because even in the book compared to, I've written a few um, a few. Uh, new stories on my blog, um, Tales from the Stripped Out blog. But even from the book to my blog, which I wrote afterwards, I'm I'm having fun by talking about the dirt. Mm-hmm. It's fun, you know, and it's it kind is. of it's it's a little scary because um, I am you know uh, a guy, and these are stories about me kind of performing for women, and it can be taken in a way that could be misogynistic or narcissistic. But it's true. And truth is interesting stuff, you know. And because I'm older now and I'm looking back on it, even though these stories, a lot of them happened when I was kind of young and dumb and full of cum, I'm able to like reflect on it and kind of make the story uh, a lot bigger than just the story. It's Mm. about sexuality between men and women. And that I'm really enjoying. And that's what's allowing me to like embrace showing the goods yeah oh that's beautiful it sounds like a really healing as you said cathartic process and that's the beauty of writing and the beauty of memoir and and sharing those stories that that might make waves and might hit some people in ways that brings up their own kinds of issues around things but will really inspire a lot of people because many people who who have similar um, desires maybe they want to put their body on display but they are not doing anything professionally to see a man doing this and and discovering more of himself and finding peace and confidence and self-love in it and harmony with other people, I think is very inspiring. And I have to say, because you mentioned her, um, Candace Bushnell, who wrote Sex in the City, who um, the whole show is based on, she's coming in the studio oh, pretty nice, soon. nice. So that was a nice little plug that was totally very cool. unintentional. But yeah. I'll have to ask her about yeah. her own catharsis, because I remember the first time I shared about my sex ed experience um, on my blog, bef- long before my book came out, or, or I've written about my eating disorder um, passed on my blog. And what's so profound to me is is when something that you wrote connects with 
an individual who needed to hear it at that time. And you can't predict that kind of thing. It's more powerful than selling thousands of books is actually just reaching one person when they are in a, a dark spot or a questioning themselves spot, or maybe they're confused about their sexuality or is it okay to feel this way? Uh, and and you're putting that out there. And that's, that's I think, what your book can do, which I'm, I'm so looking forward to reading it. Would you share where people can find it, buy it, and and follow along in your journey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to say one quick thing that, uh, you know, growing up, I prided myself on reading a lot of books and having an education, which, I mean, I did read a lot of books, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I got in my 30s that I did the math. And 90% of the books I read were written by men. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's a fact. That's statistical. I did the I did the calculation. It is what it is. So now, I've really tried to make it a point to read books written by women. And it's opened up my eyes. For instance, I wouldn't have read Girl Boner 10 years ago. But when I did, it was interesting. Even the chapters that didn't technically relate to me, I found fascinating because they revolved around something that I'm getting into. So there was bits and pieces there, and I'm a Google fanatic where I Wikipedia and Google things, and there was a lot to learn. So when I read Sex in the City, um, I thought, wow, this is very similar to me. Like she wrote about her stories with her friends and it, and uh, everything she's been through, and she she didn't paint herself like a saint, you know. And then I read the Carrie Diaries, which is her as like a high school kid, and I thought, man, I got some great high school stories. So I was really inspired by her. So I'm gonna go to her book signing next month, and I'm really excited. And um, these are these are things that inspire me to write my own book and my own stories. So I have a book out right now. It's called Tales from the Strip. It's my debut novel. I self-published it. It's available on Amazon if you just type in Tales from the Strip. Um, I also have a Kindle version and an audiobook version as well. And if you're a little on the fence, like you don't know what kind what my writing is like, uh, I started a blog, TalesFromTheStrip.blog. And I have new stories that weren't included in the book, and I have uh, interviews and videos and stuff like that. So I encourage anybody that's interested in, in learning about that to, to check it out. Awesome. And if you could choose one message, I know your, your book is full of stories and each one individually has a lesson. What's one big takeaway you hope most people take away when they read your story? I would hope that one thing people take away when they read my story is that your side isn't always the correct side. You might have aspects of if you believe in a certain person running for office or a certain idea of sexuality, you're probably right in a lot of ways, but you're not fully right. There's two sides of every story. So with the book, it's about stripping, but really it's a coming of age tale about a young heterosexual man kind of coming to terms with the world that he's living in. And it doesn't matter if you're um, a man, a woman, part of the LGBT community. It doesn't really matter. There's lessons and um, inflections in there that you can get something from. And mm -hmm. that's what I've learned by reading books that are have nothing to do with me. And sometimes they're the most profound thing I've read. Yeah, yeah. Stories are powerful for that reason. I believe it's how we change the world because we get introduced to all these different perspectives and views and experiences. And that's how we really get that inclusivity we are talking about because one worldview is only one worldview. Yeah, I, it started for me when I read this book called um, If I Was Your Girl. I can't remember the author, but it's a transgender author. 
And it's about a, a young transgender girl in high school. And I'm not transgender and I'm not in high school. But it was one of the, it, for some reason, it like, it, I was, I thought, man, this book like really taught me a lot. Like it, this character is so similar to me, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah. So there's certain things like that that I encourage people to do, like watch a television show that you normally wouldn't watch or pick up a book that is written by somebody who doesn't look like you and, and, and stick it out and give it a shot. And the lessons will stick with you, you know? Mm, yeah, I agree. Books are great storytellers and great, great teachers. Thank you so much for being here today. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. You're such a, a thoughtful guest and uh, I think are really bringing a lot of not only entertainment into the world, but insightfulness. Well, I'm really happy that we got to meet because I really enjoyed your book and I really like your podcast. So this was cool. Thank you. That means so much. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit that subscribe button if you haven't. And I would really appreciate it if you have time to leave a simple review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. <laughs>